This is a passage of scripture, and I like to read old guys, old dead guys, because as C.S. Lewis said, uh, sometimes we're uh, liable to what he called chronological snobbery, of only reading those people that have read, uh, written stuff in the last 20 or 30 years, thinking we are at the apex of all, all knowledge, and uh, yeah, God increases knowledge, but I think there's a lot to learn. And uh, I was reading through uh, some of Calvin's stuff, and he calls this passage here and what the Israelites did, monstrous madness and stupidity. And I, I love that um, because on first reading, you're just like, what in the world is going on? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been surprised by your sin? Things are going well. You think you're, you're tied in with God and you're going through life and then maybe something hits that brings a little bit of confusion and then wham, you're just, you find yourself in a place where you didn't think you would be doing something that you promised yourself you would never do again, and you're just wondering what in the world is going on. And I think as we're reading through Exodus, that's kind of the, the feeling that this passage has. You know, we, we've been following the Israelites. God has rescued them out of their slavery in Egypt. He's brought them through by bringing all these plagues on the Egyptians and the Egyptians' gods. He's rescued them from Pharaoh's army, bringing them through the Red Sea. He's provided for them and led them through manna being provided every day and then the pillar of fire by day and the or pillar of fire by night and the cloud by, by day and, and then... Moses, they're at Sinai, and Moses gets this word, and he brings these 10 words to the people, and in chapter 4, they are like twice saying, yes, we are all about this. We will do everything that God has commanded us to do. We're in this 100%. And then Moses goes up on the mountain, and he gets the instructions for the tabernacle, this place that's designed for God to be with his people in the midst of this world. He gets the regulations for the priesthood, and it's just like, man, this is awesome. God's going to be with his people. This place is going to be designed for God to meet with his people. And then all of a sudden, bam, we run into this chapter. So I'm just going to read the chapter, and then we'll talk a little bit about it as we prepare our hearts to partake in the Lord's table. This is Exodus 32. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the first book of the Bible is Genesis, then followed by Exodus. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under one of the seats near you, so we encourage you to follow along. If you're here this morning just kind of checking Christianity out, there's a little bookshelf in the foyer that has Bibles and other Christian resources. Please pick up anything that's of interest to you. We're just really glad that you are here this morning. So this is Exodus chapter 32, starting in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. 
And they rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order they may, that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, your servants, whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with two tablets of the testimony in his hands, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Wow, that's a bad lie. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, who's on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, this, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing on you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book, but now go. Lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sins upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they had made the calf 
the one that Aaron had made. This is a reading of God's word. This is one of the reasons that I believe the Bible is trustworthy. Because it never paints the people of God in all bright, sunny, shiny, sinless colors. And we're coming along in this book and all of a sudden it seems like, wham, what in the world is going on here? This is a people that has been blessed, that has been cared for by God. Even in the midst of this rebellion, still God is providing manna for them daily. They can look up on the mountain and there's the fire and the smoke and all this is going on. And they look around and they say, what's going on? Where's Moses? He's not here. And then say, oh, let's, let's make some idols to worship. To me, as we read through Scripture, often we encounter this, and it starts right at the beginning. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project has really helped me see kind of these themes that run through the Bible, and you see this in the very beginning. Everything started so well. Adam and Eve in the garden, everything's great. They're just given one command, one solitary command, and then almost immediately... They blow it, right? Then we go and and we see Noah and God, the world has become a mess. God rescues Noah out of that world with his family and he gets through that period and he lands and he plants a vineyard in his garden and then what happens? He gets drunk and then his nakedness is exposed and there's more to that than just that, but it's not the time to go into that right now. But in, in essence, here this man is to whose name means rest, and you're like, oh, maybe this is the guy, and then bam, it's not him either. And then a little bit later, we get the Tower of Babel, and God scatters the people, and then he picks for himself this nation that he's going to create out of Abraham, and in Genesis 12 through 15, Abraham is presented as this man of faith, and this man through whom this blessing of the whole world is going to come, and through his seed, right? And then we get to Genesis 16, and then... His wife says, this has taken a long time. Why don't you sleep with my handmaid and we'll help God along here a little bit. And then, bam, that happens and it all falls apart as well. And now we come to this story and it's this sense of God's raising up his people and it's going to be great. And then all of a sudden, wham, this hits. And as I read through this To me, the recognition throughout the Old Testament is that we are deeply flawed, even the best of us. We need someone to intercede for us, and we need someone to deal with the legitimate guilt of our rebellion and sin before God. And over and over and over, we see these themes coming up. We have Adam listening to the voice of his wife. We have Abraham listening to the voice of Sarah. Here we have Aaron listening to the voice of the people over and over and over again. And my first point is, can you believe how stupid these people are? It's easy to read that in this light, isn't it? You know, it's just 40 days. And it's an interesting, it uses an interesting word, and they, people saw that Moses was delayed. 
And that, throughout this story, you know, you get these themes that are repeated. They're just focusing on what they can see, right? It's, it's strange to use the word saw in terms of the delay. And the delay, there's the root of that same word as the root that we get Adam and Eve being shame. There was no shame, and then there's shame. And, and so there's all these connections that tie back to kind of this first fall, and I was going to title this message, Israel's Fall, because basically, here you have, they've given all these commands, these 10 commands, and within 40 days, and God in this passage said how quickly they've turned aside, and we say, man, how stupid are these people? They gather around Abraham, and the word in Hebrew is al, and it's more than just gathering to Abraham, or gathering to Aaron, it's against the idea there. There's, there's some hostility there. And they come up to, to Aaron and they're like, up, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses, it's a really derisive way of referring to Moses. This, who, who is this Moses? Where the heck is he? We don't know where he is. He's been gone 40 days. You know, We're left out here in the middle of the desert. We've got not sure what God is saying to us. We don't have our guide anymore. And remember, before we criticize these people too much, they don't have a Bible. They don't have anything to look at, you know, and they've been in slavery for all these years. Who knows what their theology is made of? And they're just like, okay, God's led us this far. And then all of a sudden, Moses is not on the scene anymore. He's been gone for 40 days. What in the world has happened to them? We need a God that will lead us, that will go before us. And as we look at this passage, scholars debate whether they're talking about a singular God here or a plurality of gods. Um, if you know Hebrew, Elohim is the word for God here. And when you hear im on the end of the word, cherubim, seraphim, that's a plural. But the name God is usually, though it's plural, it's usually a singular grammatically. And I don't have a grammar spasm here on you. But the reality is you could translate these are your gods or this is your God. And so to me the question is, is this breaking the first commandment? You should have no other gods before me. Or is this breaking the first and the second in terms of not making basically an idol or a graven image? From my point of view, I think this is breaking the second commandment, making an idol, because of several reasons. In the book of Nehemiah, in chapter 9, 18, Nehemiah, reflecting on this story, he uses the singular. He says, these people said, this is your God, using a singular there as well. Also, Aaron makes what? One calf, or the, the word can be used for bull as well. In the ancient Near East, a bull was often used to represent a god, Right? It was a symbol of strength and virility and fertility. Oftentimes a god would be seen riding a bull or basically a bull would represent God or Isis, I think, had bull horns on the head. So there's this idea that we want a god that's tangible that we can see in front of us. But there was only one that they, that they made. And so Aaron tells them, verse 2, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and sons and your daughters and bring them to me, it's interesting, these rings probably had some religious significance because earlier on in Genesis 35, where Jacob is getting rid of the household idols, he buries the idols, but he also buries the rings that went with them under the terebinth tree near Shechem. So there was probably some significance spiritually that the people put in this gold. And so Aaron's like, give me that spiritual gold that you've got, and I'm going to make an idol that will connect kind of with the spiritual 
realm. And so he melts it down, and then it's really clear that he fashions this into a calf. That's not his excuse later. Hey, just threw it in the fire, out comes the calf. The very last verse of this chapter says, yeah, and the calf that Aaron made. The author's making it really clear that when he was giving an excuse, it was a really lame excuse. And then the people gather, and what does Aaron say? Come, it's going to be a feast to the Lord, a feast to Yahweh. So that's why I think, you know, people are like, we don't know where Moses is, we don't know who this God is, so we want a God that can represent this God. And sometimes we get on the case of ancient people and think, man, these idols, they're so stupid making these things. Most of them did not believe that the God kind of resided in the idol, but basically that the God through the idol manifest his presence there. So they're saying, this is Yahweh, this represents Yahweh, the God that brought us out of Egypt. A medieval Jewish commentator said, the people, I know they're stupid, but they can't be that stupid to think that a God that they brought immediately out of, you know, the fire that Aaron made was the God that brought them out of Egypt. But this idol represents that God, and we don't know where that God is or where our guide, Moses, is. And so then they partake in this celebration. And it's interesting, if you go back to Genesis 24, they do the same things that they did when Moses brought the 10 words to the people. They sacrifice burnt offerings and then peace offerings. And then they eat and drink. And then it says they rose up to play. Now play, they're not playing Monopoly or cards here. This was a term that was often used for sexual activity. So basically, they're participating in what pagan worship would have been like at that time. It's a pagan orgy that is going on here. And so God says to Moses, Moses is receiving them. I said, you need to get down there because it's all gone crazy. The people have gone wild. Aaron has lost control and... He says, basically, I'm going to destroy these people. And he uses that same word that this Moses, God says, this people. And notice at first he says, your people that you brought out of Egypt. God, in essence, is distancing himself from these people. He says, these people, they're stiff-necked, they're stubborn, they've been a problem from the get-go. I'm just going to wipe them all out, and I'm going to start with you, Moses, and I'm going to build a great nation from you. And to me, you look at this and you see the growth in Moses through this. At the beginning, Moses was like, here am I, send somebody else to rescue these people. I don't want to deal with them, right? And now at this point in time, God says, I'm going to take these people out. Leave me alone and I'm going to take these people out. But what does Moses not do? He does not leave God alone. He goes to God and says, basically, God, these are your people. You've brought them out of Egypt. And what are people going to say about you? Not me, about you and your glory and your honor if these people are destroyed out here. And so the Lord responds to Moses' plea and he does not destroy the people. It says he relents or repents. And often people will 
you know, struggle with this. You know, how in the world can God repent or relent? And the village atheist will come up and say, see, there's a contradiction here. The you know, Bible says that God is unchanging, and here God changes his mind. What in the world is, is going on? Turn, if you would, to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 18. And this has helped me kind of understand this. Starting in verse 5. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. So God is saying here basically when I make these declarations, oftentimes there's a conditional aspect of this declaration. If I'm going to say I destroy these people and there's a change in the circumstances, then I may change how I'm going to react to these people. God is not changing. So what changed in these circumstances here? God says, I'm going to wipe these people out. What was the change? The change was that Moses interceded for these people. And I love in this section, this picture of Jesus that we get in Moses. We are deserving of God's wrath. We are deserving to be destroyed by God. Yet we are interceded for by Jesus. We are cared for by Jesus. He says, let the punishment that they deserve fall on me. And so Moses intercedes for the people and the Lord relents and he does not destroy them all. But he does send Moses down and Moses gets down there and I don't know if Moses did not realize how bad it was but he takes the Ten Commandments and he throws them down and he breaks them symbolically. The covenant is broken. What have you all done? You know, that bad joke, you know, who broke all the commandments at one time? Well, Moses, right? You know, that's a bad one from my early Christian days. But the reality is, Moses is like, he looks at this and says, I cannot believe you've done this. And he breaks the tablets, and then he basically gives a call, and he says, who is on the Lord's side? Who's with Yahweh? Okay, all craziness has broken out here. He goes to the front of the camp, and he shouts this out, and the, the sons of Levi come. And so there's an opportunity for people to come to the Lord and repent and relent of the way they had gone. And he says, gives them this opportunity and the sons of Levi come. And then he basically says, go, thus says the Lord, execute judgment on your brothers, on those that are unwilling to come to the Lord at this time. And we hear this and it sounds really rough and it is really rough. To me, death is sin made visible. And sometimes when we sin, there's a long period before death comes. But sometimes God execute, executes that judgment very quickly. And in this chapter, you see two judgments happening. One is this 3,000 that are judged here. And then Moses says, basically, I'm going to go intercede for the people. And he goes back up and he tries to say, let 
me be blotted out from the book and these people be okay? And God says, basically, no. Each person's gonna take their own responsibility for this and I'm gonna visit justice on the people and then a plague comes. So there are these two judgments and so what's going on? Why were the 3,000 killed at one point in time and then this plague comes later on to visit judgment? What I think is probably going on here And you need to realize that before this time, there were no Levites. There was just Aaron and his sons were the priests. Nobody else was designated as priests. So if you look at chapter 24, there were a lot of young men that were offering sacrifices. So there were some people in the camp that had this role kind of as priests of those that would bring the sacrifice. So what I'm thinking is happening here is these 3,000 were probably the ringleaders of basically following the calf. They were the priests. They were the ones that were offering these sacrifices sacrifices, and on those got executed immediate judgment. But for the people that just followed along, there was still guilt that they had. And then Moses goes up and says, I'm going to pray for you all to the Lord, hopefully that he will relent in sending this judgment. In the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And we see this plague coming. And we're not told here what the extent of that plague was, if they died from that plague or were just severely sick. But in essence, there's two judgments. And that's how I kind of put it together that I think there were the ringleaders of the group that were kind of leading this rebellion. These were the guys that came to Moses or came to Aaron and said, you up, get up, make us gods or make us a God that will go before us. And God's judgment is strong and swift upon those So we look at this and we say, man, how stupid are these people? Monstrous madness and stupidity. And in one sense, we can see that. But I think as we look at this, my second point is, can you believe how stupid I am? Because I can very much relate to these people. How quickly I can start living primarily from my senses and what I see especially when I'm confused about life and what God is doing. These people are fearful of the future. Make us a God that's going to go before us. We don't know what in the heck is going to happen in the future. We're out in the midst of this desert. We've, you know, where where do we go? What do we do? We need to have something that's going to lead us forward and secure our future. And throughout this and through these falls in scripture, we see this word saw come up over and over again, this idea that these people were just looking on the horizontal, what they could see. Eve saw that the tree was good for fruit, right? Genesis 16, Sarah says, see now, I can't have kids basically. Let's get this program going. And here, the people saw that Moses was delayed. It's a really strange verb to use for delay. They saw that he was delayed. And later on, we see in verse five, when it says here, when Aaron saw, and my translation says saw this, but there's nothing there. It's just when Aaron saw, he built an altar. And it's, again, why is that in there? It doesn't make any sense in the flow, but I think the author is, brilliantly bringing all these themes and saying, oh, see, see, saw, saw, took, took, all these words that connect these stories and saying these people were living based on what they saw instead of trusting in the God that was unseen. And I think, wow, how often do I 
do that. God, this is what I see, and the struggle's real, and I don't know how you're going to come through, so I think I'm just going to have to take matters into my own hand and make this happen instead of waiting on God and trusting him. Forty days, you know, it's not a long time. Abraham and Sarah at least had a longer time while they were waiting for this child to come around. But still, in the midst of this, God, how are you going to come through? How are you going to work this out? Our temptation is to go back and figure out, okay, how are we going to manage this on our own? And the people of Israel is like, okay, we know how to do this. Back in Egypt, they had idols, and so make us a God. We need to see a visible God that will lead us. We need to see some tangible evidence that God is here and now. I don't know about this Moses, where he is, and I don't know about Moses, God, so we need something visible and tangible and present with us. How often I am there and how quickly I go there. How easily also I succumb to pressure from others. Make us a God to go before us. This is huge today. In a world where there are fewer and fewer transcendent norms, things that are absolute, the thing that holds sway in our culture is what the majority thinks or what the majority likes. And if you disagree with that majority, you will be ostracized and you will be, in essence, like the Amish, shunned. And so when we're in the workplace or at school or on social media, we just are not going to speak up because we know what the voice of the people has said and we don't want to disagree with that because we know it will be difficult. And you think of Aaron, he's feeling the pressure. We don't know how many people are coming against him, but there's pressure there, right? Man, you do this. And so Aaron felt that. Maybe he didn't know when Moses was going to return and what in the world is going on, so I better give in to these people. Also, like these people, how tempting it is for me to mold God into the shape that I want him to be. For them, it was a calf or a bull. The words are used interchangeably, also ox as well. But that was the symbol. This is what represents God and power in this culture. This is the shape that gods have. I don't know about this I am that I am God. That's kind of nebulous. I can't really grasp that. It's too big to put my hands around. I want something tangible that I can look to and, you know, frankly, it's not that demanding, you know. I'll offer a few sacrifices. I'll do a few religious things and then basically I can live whatever I want to do, right? I can rise up to play because this calf is not going to confront me, right? You ever hear people say, I like to think of God as, or my God would never, or I know God wants me to be happy, so <laughs> have you used that one? <laughs> And to me, this is the, the monstrous madness of Calvin. To think, I am a creation of God. That what I think of God will materially change who he is, is madness. But it happens all the time. My God wouldn't do that. 
I want my God to do this. We do not have primarily metal images of God and idols of God. We have mental images and idols of God. Things that we construct because this is the God that I want to have. Because it's comfortable. I like it. It's not demanding. It doesn't say anything that ruffles my feathers. It doesn't say anything that's politically incorrect. I don't have to wrestle with this thing. The I am that I am, it's just a calf. And we can go through religious ceremonies. The Jews were doing the same thing they did when Moses first brought the Ten Commandments. They're sacrificing burnt offerings and peace offerings. They're having a fellowship meal. Yeah, we're just, we'll call it church. But when church loses a sense of who God is based on the word of God and it becomes, oh, what I want God to be. I'm reading a book right now and it's pretty dense. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. And in it he just talks about basically that we've moved to a time where there's no external reality. Everything is internal reality. What I believe and what I think is the only thing that matters. And early on he says this, the triumph of the therapeutic or the psychological self represents the advent of the expressive individual as the normative type of human being. And this is the part, and of the relativizing of all meaning and truth to personal taste. Everything becomes just personal taste. Why? Because there's nothing transcendent. So my God is this way and you can have your God that way. But to me, if there is a God, and I believe there is a God, then what I think about that God better be aligned with the reality of who that God is and not who I want that God to be. We see even the consequences in this section of those that had abandoned the reality of who God really was for their image of who they wanted God to be. So let me ask you a question this morning. Is your view of God based on the truth of God's word or based on what you want God to be? And also, how often and quickly I pursue immediate gratification instead of waiting on God's timing. Again, 40 days. It doesn't seem that long. This is a people that have seen the plagues that have gone through the Red Sea that have manna every day and you're like, 40 days? And we're like, wah! And they go off the rails. It's like, oh, I can, I can be so much like that. Well, this is more comfortable, or this is easier, or I don't want to wait on God for a spouse. I just need my sexual fulfillment right now, or I don't want to wait on God to provide for me, and I know I can get this cash a little bit easier on the side, or fudge a little bit here or there, and it's so easy to give in to that temptation for immediate gratification instead of waiting on God's timing. And finally, how quick am I to justify myself by blaming others and frankly, just some bold-faced lies? You know, this goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, the classic passing of the buck, right? It's like, what? Oh, it's the snake. What? It was the woman. Aaron here, what? Oh, these people, you know, They're literally in evil. These are really bad people, God. 
not me, I'm a pretty good guy, but these people, they're really bad. And they came up to me, and you know, I couldn't do anything. I just asked for their gold, and I threw the gold into the fire, and out came this calf. What else could I do? I'm a victim of my circumstances. I'm a victim of my biology. I'm a victim of my family. Yes, all of those things make an impact on us. And I think all of us have propensities and tendencies towards certain sins that are probably hardwired in us. I think there's pretty strong research that suggests that alcoholism is like that. But still, even if that propensity is there, it does not excuse my moving into that area. It just makes moving into that area very much more dangerous for me because those things can get a hold of my life and just take me down really quickly. It's not my fault. What monstrous madness and stupidity resides in my own heart. And I love the end here of this section where you see Moses wanting to go up and he says, you've sinned a great sin, verse 30, and he doesn't minimize the sin. He never says, ah, this is nothing, and that great sin was usually used of idolatry. It was also used of adultery, and we know in the Old Testament so often even people's idolatry was pictured as adultery to God because they had already entered into this covenant relationship with God, and that's how he viewed it. And he, he's here, and he's like, oh, they've sinned a great sin. And he says, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Verse 31, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. That's an amazing statement of solidarity with these people. It's like, man, I so want you to be merciful to them, to make atonement for them, that I'll be willing to be blotted out. We say the same attitude in Paul in Romans 9. It's like, man, if you would take my people and bring them in, I'd be willing to be cut off from Christ and alienated. But God says that's not how it works. Moses, you can't make atonement for these people. They will bear the responsibility for their sin. But I think it's beautiful that we have communion this morning because we have one that can make atonement for us. The only one that ever could. He says, nevertheless, when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. There will be a day where God judges all people. That's reality. We don't like that. That doesn't sit well in the modern world. But what I do, I'm accountable before a holy and righteous God for and that's just the reality. And if you know your heart, like I know my heart, you realize, man, that's probably not going to go really well. Even now, after I've been a believer since 1985, there's still stuff in my life. It's like, really? I'm not going to get control of my anger yet? And God says, come on, keep working with me. But it's because of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that he made atonement for our sin. He paid the price. He took the justice. God's wrath was visited on him on the cross, and that's what we celebrate as we come to communion. Because like me, you know what? Your heart is full of monstrous madness and stupidity as well. Yet we serve a God that loves us enough to look beyond that. The amazing thing to me is 
Moses intercedes, we're told this in Deuteronomy, for Aaron, and Aaron's still the high priest after all this goes down. We sang about the amazing grace of God. All these people deserve to be wiped out, and God raises up Moses to intercede, and then he says, no, you're not the one that can provide atonement. We need to look to someone to come. That prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18, that suffering servant in Isaiah that will take upon himself my sin and my transgression. The one all the way back in Genesis 3.15 that will take the strike of the servant on the heel. And some people say, well, that's not a really mortal wound. Yes, it is. When a serpent strikes, a venomous serpent strikes, it strikes on the heel. So this person is going to die, yet they will crush the head of the serpent. How does all that work out? And that story unfolds throughout Scripture, and it narrows down to Jesus Christ, the one that took the strike for us so that we could have life. So we're going to celebrate the Lord's table this morning. It's a time for us to be honest and open before the Lord about our need for gracious mercy and forgiveness and to remember that there's only one that will provide that atonement, that will provide that forgiveness and a reconciliation of that relationship with God, and that's Jesus Christ. He is the one that this whole story points to. He is the one that deals with this stuff in our heart. And because of his mercy and amazing grace, he accepts us. And not only accepts us, he's willing to adopt us into his family and delight over us, even those of us who are like Aaron, who make really lame excuses for our disobedience and try to justify it by blaming everybody else. If we come to that place where we come clean and said, you know what, I'm the man, I'm the woman, I need your grace, your mercy, and your forgiveness, God will abundantly pardon and forgive. Thank you.